We're going to begin with our children's lesson today, and our children's lesson is going to be the book of Jonah. So get ready to listen to the story. <clears throat> Jonah chapter 1. Um, Grown-ups, I guess you can listen in too. This is our text. Jonah, the first chapter is our text today, but we're going to read. We're going to see if we can get through the whole thing. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. For their evil had come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. They said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And what, of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, and the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me, and all your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. The weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me 
forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit. O Lord my God, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. Call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hand. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he could see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. 
But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? This is the word of the Lord. I hope you were paying attention to that, kids, because that, that's the book. That's the scene. So now we're going to go back to the beginning. We're going to talk about it. Adults, you can start listening now too, okay? We are first introduced to Jonah, not here in Jonah chapter 1. We're first introduced to Jonah in 2 Kings chapter 14, verses 23 through 29. Jonah was the son of Amittai and was from Gath-Hefer, we learn in 2 Kings. Jonah prophesied during the peaceful reign of Jeroboam II from 782 to 753 B.C. That's in Israel. And so that puts Jonah in Nineveh sometime around 760 B.C. Nineveh was in the heart of Assyria. It, it's where, uh, what is today northern Iraq. <coughs> Nineveh was on one side of the river and another city that you would recognize the name of is on the other side of that river. river. And at this time, Assyria was not a particular threat to Israel, but they were known and they were despised um, because the Assyrians were known for their cruelty. I'm not going to read you any detail, but if you are interested in knowing why they were known for their cruelty, you can find all kinds of information. Um, and so they were known for their cruelty and their bar, their, they were bar, uh, you know the word I'm thinking of. It was cruel. They were, yeah, barbarians. And so um, they were despised. And they, they had mastered the art of torture and they relished in the psychological terror that it produced in their enemies and in Israel. Although the thought of confronting such a violent and brutal empire alone as a single man with nothing but the message of God is terrifying to us uh, to think about. If you were called to um, Iran right now, all alone, with nothing but a message from God, that, that would be a sobering thought right now. Um, but that is not why Jonah fled. Jonah was not afraid. Jonah was not a coward. Israel at that time was not in a good place spiritually. Her king did evil in the sight of Yahweh. That's what we learn in uh, 2 Kings 14. Nevertheless, God was blessing Israel. He was being merciful to Israel. And Jonah himself actually prophesied some of those blessings and that prosperity that came to pass during this reign of this evil king. And the kindness to Israel was meant for something. We know from Romans what the kindness is meant for. The kindness was meant to lead Israel to repentance. But they did not heed God's call. They did not accept God's kindness and their repentance. But the people rejected this undeserved loving kindness and they persisted in rebellion. They persisted 
in rebellion. They persisted in rebellion. And God was merciful and kind and patient and suffered long, but they persisted in the rebellion. They were persisting in their spiritual adultery, and ultimately they were conquered and taken away by Assyria in 722 B.C. You can read about this fall and the exile in uh, 2 Kings 17, 6 through 18, if you'd like to. God used Jonah, along with other prophets and seers, to warn Israel and Judah. And this is what they said. Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. That included Jonah. Israel did not heed the voice of Jonah or the other prophets. And so when God took counsel with Jonah, when God took counsel with his prophet to send him to another nation, Jonah knew well what that meant. It meant that if God's word was going out to Nineveh, if God's word was going out to the nations, judgment was coming to Israel. Real quick, go over to Deuteronomy 32, verse 21. We're, we're going to revisit Deuteronomy 32 later in, um, as we continue through jo- Jonah. Deuteronomy 32 is an important text to understand Jonah and Jonah's reaction to God. Deuteronomy 32.21 says this. They have made me jealous with what what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. That's the story of Jonah. That's what's happening. And Jonah knows that's what's happening. And so, Jonah's pride, and particularly his short-sighted national pride, became a stumbling block. Instead of going to Nineveh, as Yahweh commanded, Jonah flees from his presence. He goes the opposite direction to Tarshish, a port city in the far west. And so as he's fleeing, he goes down to Joppa. Joppa is a coastal city. Joppa is the city where Peter raised a disciple named Tabitha from the dead and where he stayed with a man named Simon the Tanner. Joppa is where Peter, who is, by the way, the son of Jonah, Simon Bar-Jonah, that's interesting. This is where Peter is given the vision that prompted him to take the gospel to the Gentiles. In Joppa is where Peter receives that vision, to Cornelius. So based on the book itself, Jonah is clearly the source. Who else was there to know what he said in the belly of the fish, right? And the fact that the later, that fact and the later reference by Jesus tells us something about this man. Tells us something of how we should view this man. And the open-ended book, the book ends completely um, with a question, unknown where Jonah is at spiritually, just kind of like it was unknown where Israel was going to go. Was Israel going to continue to persist in rebellion at this judgment? Or was Israel going to turn and repent, come back to her covenant-keeping God? And so it, it's a, it's a, the book is a open-ended and it's mysterious. A prophet, I think, though, that should help us to see 
and define better what we understand a prophet to be more than just help us to look and question who Jonah is and where he's going. We should say, well, what is this teaching about what a prophet is? And what a prophet is is more than just somebody who goes and foretells the future or somebody who goes and relays a message. That's a part of prophecy. But for Jonah and for the prophets, especially in the Old Testament, a prophet was a counselor with God, one who God took counsel with. That can sound kind of odd to us, especially as we understand God is the sovereign. Why in the world would he take counsel with men? But he does. Throughout the scriptures, we see it. He counsels with people. And, And when God takes counsel with Moses, Moses does not agree with God. And so Moses hightails it. He gets out. He says, I'm, I'm leaving. Um, but prophets are more than just ones who convey verbally. Prophets throughout the Bible embody and dramatize the message that God gives them. And so um, Jonah's an interesting book. It's a book of prophecies. He's one of the minor prophets. But only a few lines actually deal with his message at all. The, mo- the majority of the book is all about the man. Whereas, you go look at prophetic books, and what you're going to see is the word of the Lord. What is the word of the Lord? And so, the prophets were meant to dramatize God's relationship, God's covenant. Dramatize the message that God telling, is telling them to send out. And this is exactly what Jonah unwittingly does. Jonah is Israel. Jonah's rebellion and flight and Yahweh's pursuit and loving discipline and judgment represents Israel's rebellion and flight and Yahweh's pursuit and loving discipline and judgment. Yahweh's Relentless judgment of Jonah's rebellion, just like Israel's, will result in salvation for the Gentiles and even nations. Before we get into these next verses, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we open this word up and as we begin to unpack what this means for us, what we should understand, what we should walk away with today, would you please break our hearts open? that the seed would fall on good soil. Would you guard my mouth? Would you guard the congregation's ears? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Jonah's name means dove. And so right off the bat, we, we can see this is a story of a dove being sent out over the waters. A dove that is sent out and goes forth over the raging waters of God's judgment, but finds no rest save in God's prepared salvation. And in Jonah's case, that's a great fish or a whale or a sea monster or something. Jonah is the son of Amittai. That name, that father's name, Amittai, comes from the Hebrew word for truth, which means that Truth is a part of this story. And we think, how is truth? I mean, of course, truth is a part of the whole entire Bible, right? But what, what is particular about truth 
in Jonah's story. And in one sense, we can look at this and say, Jonah doesn't care much for truth, does he? He's fleeing the word of God. But maybe there's more to it than we think. Jonah's angry that God relents of the pronounced disaster over Nineveh. He gets angry with God. And he says, this is why I made haste to flee. I knew you th that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah's description of Yahweh is an echo of Exodus 34, 6, and 7. You don't need to turn there, uh, but I'm going to read it to you. And this is what it says. Yahweh, Yahweh, God merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So do you see what seems to be missing from Jonah's accounting? Jonah's description? Truth. And maybe this omission is an underhanded accusation at God that he does not seem to care much for truth in the case of Nineveh. Yahweh God, who will by no means clear the guilty, turns and relents from the well-deserved judgment of this guilty nation. Jonah's dilemma is a genuine dilemma, and it is a cosmic dilemma, and it is this. How can Yahweh be merciful and just? How can God be merciful and just? How can he be merciful and still true to his word? Jonah's wrestling with that. God takes counsel with his prophet, and Jonah flees because he doesn't like the answer that he gets. Jonah cares about truth in a way that is so narrow as to exclude the truth of Yahweh's mercy. Jonah's, Jonah wants to be the arbiter of mercy and truth. He wants to be the arbiter of justice and mercy. Mercy for me, God, truth for them. Mercy for me, truth to all my enemies. I'm so grateful we don't ever think like Jonah, right? Jonah's truncated view of truth and justice and mercy distorted the reality of who Yahweh is and what he is doing in creation and in the story of the redemption of mankind. It distorts the reality of his purpose for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what it does is it turns the purpose for his covenant people inward instead of for all the families of the earth, as we read in Genesis. The blessing is for all the families of the earth. But what Jonah was doing was saying, me, us, not them. Arise, go to Nineveh. Yahweh calls Jonah up. Jonah arises, but instead, Jonah goes down. He goes down to Joppa, Jonah 1.3. He goes down into the inner part of the ship, Jonah 1.5. And he goes down to the bottoms of the mountains, 
Jonah 2.6. Down, down, down. Jonah's going down, but the evil of the great city Nineveh has gone up before Yahweh. And the time had come for the prophet to go call out against it. In verse 3, we see um, two times this phrase, unto Tarshish, from the presence of Yahweh. Unto Tarshish, away from the presence of Yahweh. And what we have in verse 3 is this little thing called a chiasm. A chiasm is a literary um, device where elements are developed and then repeated in reverse order. One easy example is the phrase, the Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath. A-B-B-A. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And so that's a simple chiasm. It develops, Sabbath made for man, and then reverse order, not man for the Sabbath, and teaches us something. Um, Well, sometimes the chiasms have a a single line in the middle. So instead of A-B-B-A, it goes A-B-C-B-A. This sounds complicated, but look at verse 3. He says, unto Tarshish, Tarshish, from the presence of Yahweh, then we have, that's A, then we have down to Joppa, and he found a ship, and then C, Jonah pays the price, then we have B, it's, un, it's reverse order now, down into the ship, he goes down again, and then A, unto Tarshish, away from the presence of Yahweh. Unto Tarshish, down to Joppa, Jonah pays the price, down into the ship, unto Tarshish, away from the presence of God. And so, I understand this little, little literary device to be this ominous picture of what the entire um, scope of redemption is all about and what Jonah is about. Jonah pays the price. Jonah is Israel. And later in the Gospels, we'll see even further and we'll understand that Jesus is the new and better Jonah. Jesus is a new Israel. And so this new and better Jonah paid the price to mount his own wooden vessel of judgment. He condescended from the presence of the glorious throne of Yahweh. He left the presence of Yahweh. He would be plunged to depths unimaginable and swallowed whole by death. This sign of Jonah was his death and resurrection, but even more, it's a story of the gospel going to the world, to the nations. Jonah's story is Israel's story, which is the story of Jesus Christ, which then comes full circle around for you, church, and it it becomes your story as well. It's our story. Being a Christian means there is a price that must be paid because we follow the one who paid the price. Being a Christian costs something. Verses 4 through 6, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. Of course, our God is the God of hurricanes, the God of fires and floods and tornadoes and hailstorms. He's the God of land and sea. And every fish and whale and shark and sea monster that swims in it. God hurled a great wind upon the sea after Jonah. And Jonah could try and flee from Yahweh. 
He could try and flee from the presence of God, but besides being actually impossible, Yahweh was not finished with his company. Yahweh was not finished with his prophet. And so he hurled a great wind upon the sea after his prophet. This word great used here is used uh, 14 times in the short book to describe all kinds of things like the city, the fish. It's used to describe people. Of all the things that it's used to describe in the book, you know what it's not used to describe? Nineveh's sin. Their sin was great, no doubt. But this word is used over and over. A great wind, a great city, great people down to the least, a great fish, a great tempest, great fear, great rejoicing. And of all the things used by the author to describe as great, he does not use it to describe Nineveh's sin. That's on purpose. It's not an accident. Jonah is fleeing from the God of the sea and he gets on a ship. Not the smartest move, I would say, but where else are you going to go, I guess? One of my favorite things to do when I read the Bible is to see typology and to see parallels and um, connections or contrast. <clears throat> to other stories and to other characters and elements and actions. And so, let's do that exercise for a moment and think of other accounts of stormy seas. Sometimes it's easy when we read the book of Jonah. Maybe you were already thinking of a parallel or a typology that you noticed as we read through the book. You, you probably thought when you read about Jonah fast asleep down in the boat, did you think of something else? A man fast asleep in a boat, in a storm, um, with terrified men surrounding him who come and wake him up. And then when that man wakes up, he calms the storm. He brings calm to the storm he sees. What does that make you think of? What does that remind you of? Somebody else? I think so. Maybe. Mm-hmm. Yes, it reminds us of Christ. Fast asleep on a stormy sea, surrounded by terrified disciples who wake him up, who brings calm. Sometimes it isn't as obvious, but if you can see, it's exciting and helpful to show the kinds of themes and narratives that God likes to use, and it can sometimes expand the interpretive possibilities that we're meant to glean and consider. So take Paul in Acts 27 and 28. At the end of the books, a book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, we have another stormy sea. We have another man who's taking the word of God to the Gentiles in a ship on a stormy sea. But this time, salvation isn't going to come because somebody's thrown off. In fact, Paul says, if anybody gets off this ship, we're all going to die. For Jonah, it was throw me off so you can live. For Paul, on this stormy sea in the ship, it was, if anybody leaves, we're all going to die. And so the soldiers who are with Paul cut the boat and nobody can leave. And they're terrified. In Jonah's story, everyone is spared, but Jonah is swallowed by the great fish. And this encounter with this animal means salvation for the Gentiles. Well, in Paul's um, stormy sea account, they finally make it to shore, and he has an encounter with an animal, with a serpent. You remember that? He's 
carrying wood and a viper jumps out and bites him. And everybody's going, all right, this is it. He's a goner. And they keep waiting and they keep waiting and they keep waiting. But God miraculously spares him from this deadly encounter. And what does that mean? Salvation to the Gentiles. Not just to the ones there on the island, but to the people who Paul would go on to preach to. In Jonah's, um, in Jonah's story, everyone's spared because Jonah is swallowed. In Paul's sea story, it includes the deadly encounter. He's bitten, but it's salvation also for the Gentiles, but it's because he was spared. The connection between the account of Paul and the account of Jonah can help to inform how we understand certain interpretations. For example, if we take the great fish, um, Jonah says that uh, he was swallowed by a great fish. That's the word for fish. When Jesus talks about it in the New Testament, he uses not the word for fish, he uses the Greek word for sea monster, which is interesting. The word can mean whale or sea monster or shark, um, but he doesn't, Jesus doesn't use the regular normal word for fish. Um, in Greek mythology, this word that is used, this, the, Jesus used the word ketos, and that word in Greek mythology is this creature who was portrayed as this um, giant scaly beast with four feet like a seal and huge wide jaws and um, it was a great and terrible thing. This is the word Jesus used. Now what his people actually heard and imagined, we, we don't know, and the specific identity of what swallowed Jonah, we don't know. <clears throat> but we know that serpents represent death. And we know that Jonah's swallowing was representative of death, Jonah being swallowed by death. And so this account uh, with Paul's is kind of interesting because it kind of can bring a parallel to the idea that it, this is all about the enmity between God's people and the serpent. God's people and the serpent, death. Now, Jonah, like I said, does not use the word for sea monster. There is a Hebrew word for sea monster, and Jonah does not use that word. He uses the word for fish. But that's also interesting because fish in the Bible represent Gentiles. The sea in the Bible represents the nations, while the land represents Israel. And so when you go out on the sea, it's a picture of going out into the nations, to the wild, to the unknown. And so those fish represent Gentiles. Jonah, swallowed by that great fish, was a foretelling of what was coming for Israel. Israel would eventually be swallowed up by a Gentile nation, by the Assyrians. And that swallowing up that was coming, God was telling his people, was not going to be your death and destruction. <clears throat> it was going to be your salvation. And so, Assyria rep was represented by that fish that swallowed Jonah. So, at the end of the day, like I said, we don't know the identity of that creature. But what we know is that he was swallowed up. And either literally or figuratively, Jonah died. <clears throat> and 
Jonah's literal or figurative death meant his salvation. He wasn't going to survive in the bottom, at the bottom of the sea. So we know that Jesus swallowed up death, and that turned out to be a preserving blessing for us on a cosmic scale. When Jesus says, I'm going to give you the sign of Jonah, that's a part of it. I'm, I am going to preserve you from death, but you got to die. The unbelieving captain of the ship thought he had figured out the problem. <clears throat> Did you notice that when he says, hey, get up, pray to your God. Maybe he'll give a thought to us. But the irony is that that's exactly the cause of their problem. God had given a thought to them. That's why he sent the wind. It's because the God of Jonah refused to turn him over, to ignore him, to say, I'm done with you. I'm moving on to somebody else that these Gentiles were in the position they were in. God hurled the great wind as a master firmly pulling back the reins on his beast of burden. And the thought wasn't just for Jonah. The thought was for these sailors. That thought of these sailors coming to faith in the God of Israel was not inconsequential. It wasn't a sweet add-on. The Bible tells us that when one sinner is saved, angels rejoice. This ship, these men who served their false gods turned to the one true God. That's not nothing. These men did not know what was going on. <clears throat> But Jonah knew, and God outed him with the lot. And that's a, a picture of random chance. But we know from the Proverbs that even the lot cast into the lap, the decision is from the Lord. And so he offers up this brief explanation. I am a Hebrew. I fear Yahweh, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And there's so much sarcasm and irony here in this book. And this is a good example if the sailors were not so preoccupied with trying to stay alive, they would probably be thinking, really? You fear the God of the sea and of the land? Really, Jonah? You're fleeing from this God who made the sea on a boat? Smart guy. At the moment, they were afraid. And now, it wasn't just because of the sea. You see, they were not just afraid because of the storm. Now, they are afraid of the God of the storm says they were exceedingly, greatly afraid. They, not, they saw now not just the power of the wind and of the water. Now they saw the power of the God of the wind and the water. What shall we do? This is the storm before the gospel calm. The good news of Christ's atonement and the varied and contrasting characters are woven throughout these verses in Jonah so beautifully. These echoes can lead your mind and should lead our minds to those dreadful, stormy hours surrounding Christ's crucifixion. This is what the sailors say. <clears throat> Listen to these echoes. What shall we do to you? Let us not perish for this man's life. Lay not on us innocent blood. 
You, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. They offered sacrifice to Yahweh. Consider the, some of these same echoes from those hours before Christ's death. What shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? I am innocent of this man's blood. His blood be on us and on our children. You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jonah said, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. I think we can be confident based on Jonah's persistent rebellious attitude in the words in the chapters that follow that this is more of a selfish I'd rather die than obey moment probably than it is a selfless act of love moment regardless the my life for yours element is here and it is unavoidably and undeniably good news it sure was for those sailors Salvation in the midst of this storm. The storm of God's wrath paid for by the life of another. God cast the great wind to the sea and now Jonah tells the sailors they have to cast him into the sea. Same word. However, the sailors, kind of like Pontius Pilate, did not want to believe that this was the only way. They thought that some power was still in their hands. Possibly they could be saved by their own efforts. Perhaps they didn't have to have a blood sacrifice. And so they rode hard to get back to dry land. But no amount of human effort can push against God's waves. No amount of human effort could push against God's waves. No human striving could overcome the gulf of God's mercy and truth in order to satisfy the wrath of God, and certainly no human will could thwart God's plan and purpose. And of course, Jonah was not an innocent man. Jonah was in that position precisely because of his rebellion. He was a stiff-necked rebel, and he certainly deserved everything he had coming to the worst. And these heathen sailors had already recognized Jonah's guilt in fleeing the presence of Jonah, I mean, presence of the Lord. And so, what could they mean then by calling him innocent? Why did they say innocent? Have they misspoken? Have they misunderstood? No, I don't believe so. I think they understood very well. Jonah's personal sin or innocence was beside the point for the sailors. Because Even if Jonah was blameless, and he wasn't, even if he was, how could his life satisfy for their sin? How could his life satisfy for their guilt before the holy God? Before the God of heaven and the sea, they had come to recognize and believe in. As long as they lived, it could not satisfy. And so they lifted this man 
up and they hurled him, they hurled this dove into the waters. Over the side of their ark into the sea. They were throwing, in doing this, they were throwing all of their hope, not on Jonah. They were throwing all of their hope onto Yahweh. Onto His mercy. They feared Yahweh exceedingly and offered a sacrifice to Him and made vows, we are told. And it's interesting to think about this sacrifice. They had already thrown Jonah overboard. They had already thrown the cargo overboard. And, of course, they could have had other acceptable animals or something on board still to offer, um, offer God that would be pleasing to him. That's true. And it's conceivable that Jonah could have, after the fact, learned about it because they had already thrown him over. Or, perhaps this is kind of Jonah being funny. Nodding to the really obvious fact here. They offered a sacrifice to Yahweh. He was their sacrifice. Even if they offered something else later, the point is, he was their sacrifice that appeased the wrath of God. The seas calmed. Not when they burned up an animal, hypothetically, but when they cast that man into the ocean. Jonah was a stiff-necked rebel prophet who had run away from his home, who had run away from his father, and who was wallowing now in a muddy pit. And these heathen, these heathen sailors <clears throat> were no better, and neither were they any worse. One theme that we can draw from Jonah <coughs> is the truth that Paul lays out so well in Romans all have sinned and fall short. The truth that Paul lays out in Romans, that Yahweh has mercy on whom he has mercy. It wasn't up to Jonah to decide, and it isn't up to us to decide either. This mercy, this loving kindness of the Father towards sinners does not contradict, contradict his truth and justice. Listen to 1 Peter 1.3, paraphrase, the Father, which according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Jonah rightly proclaims later at the end of chapter 2, salvation is of Yahweh. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Paul goes on, he says this, they're justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ, in Jesus. 
Jonah's self-sacrifice was a shadow of the sacrifice that would be given by Christ that actually would atone for sin. Salvation is of Yahweh. He is just and the justifier. He is merciful and he is true. We'll talk more about this in the chapters to come. But for today, that is all. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us prepare to come to the table. Jesus Christ is our sacrifice placed upon the altar. He is the price paid. He is the gift that is given. And here at this table, we receive that gift. We receive that gift of grace again. And if, um, not, it, it's not a receiving again as if Christ is being sacrificed again. No, not at all. We receive the grace at this table as our Father renews covenant with us. A covenant that is based upon the once and for all time sacrifice of His Son, the perfect Lamb. We receive Christ at this table, but He is not a dead Christ. We receive Christ, the bread of life. So come and welcome to Jesus. Stand and receive your charge this morning. Your charge is this. Obey. Go where you are told to go. Do what you are told to do. Say what you are told to say. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. Jonah's downfall was pride. Don't be proud. There is a price for you to pay, Christian. So count the cost. Christ died. You must die. But he is risen. He lives. And he is no longer in the depths of the sea. He walks. He is here. This is the gospel that you you must believe and you must proclaim. He died and he calls men to die. He lives and raises those swallowed with him to new life. So arise and and go. Wake from your sleep. Some of you do need to take a nap today. But awake from your sleep and believe this. Do not go down, down, down. Get up. Trust Him. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Amen. The Lord be with you.